chapter 16, verse 1. Now Korah, son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dothan, and Abraham, the sons of Elab, and On, the son of Peleth, who were Reubenites, took men and rebelled against Moses along with some of the Israelites, 250 leaders of the community, chosen from the assembly, famous men, and they assembled against Moses and Aaron, saying to them, You take too much upon yourselves, seeing that the whole community is holy, every one of them, Yahweh has an, uh, Yahweh is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the community of Yahweh? So probably all you heard was a whole bunch of names that you don't understand and rebellion. And when you break this down, what you realize is that there's two major groups that have joined against Aaron and Moses to rebel. The first one is um, Korah. This is the most important one. And all throughout the rest of the Bible is going to be referred to as the rebellion of Korah. Korah is a primary family here leading this rebellion. And everybody else seems to just kind of follow into their leadership. Korah is one of the Levitical families. So of the four families that God put around the tabernacle, the Kohites is one of them. So we're talking about a major major like rebellion of authority here. We're, we're talking about Levites who are closer to God than anybody else who have the priestly responsibility for atoning for the sins of the people. And this is one of the four major families in their rebellion. The second one is the families of Dothan, Abiram, and On from the tribe of Reuben. So it's three other families from the tribe of Reuben who are following the leadership in the rebellion of Korah. Now Korah, with the, these three families of Reuben, come up to Moses and they accuse Moses of not allowing them to be priests. And they said, don't you remember that all of us were called by God to be priests? The entire nation. Now at first this seems confusing because it isn't Korah part of the priesthood, so why are they complaining that not everybody gets to be priests. But as you keep reading, you find out that Korah then goes on and says, we think we should have the right to be the high priestly family. And so Korah goes on with a more specific complaint saying, it's not right that you, Moses and Aaron, you're the high priestly family. Moses technically not a high priest, but because he's the prophet and kind of the brother of Aaron, it seems very favoritism that he's picked his brother to be the high priest. We don't think that it's right that you are the high priest. We should be high priests as well. Now, probably what's doing is they they're specifically want the power of high priesthood, but they have then broadened their argument into a more general, everybody gets to be priests to get as many like sympathizers and followers as possible so that the rebellion has a greater momentum and a greater impact against Moses and Aaron. If it's just them by themselves, all the other people could say, well, I don't really care about your argument because we're not priests either. I mean, at least you get to be priests, so what are you complaining about? But if they can like jump in this, like, well, all of us, shouldn't all of us be priests? Yeah, they rile up more people and the rebellion comes bigger. Unfortunately for them, only three families kind of take the bait and go with them. But it's still enough to cause a problem because we know what just 10 spies with a false evil report can do the entire nation, let alone now four families 
rebelling here. The irony here is they're kind of right. God did appoint everybody to be priestly families, so to speak. The firstborn of every family would be priests. But the, the, the truth that they kind of conveniently left out or forgot to mention was like, oh yeah, but the entire nation lost that right when they worshipped the golden calf. And so they're completely like, this is spinning everything for their own agenda. And if it was today, they would totally have a place on CNN and Fox. So the reality is they're just making it whatever they want it to be, and everybody's buying into it with these short memories that they have of the past. So this is their major complaint. We want to be the priesthood. We think you, Moses, have played favorites by picking your brother to be the high priest. That's not right. Who do you think you are? Now, the other thing that they completely forgot was when they were all standing at the mountain and God was speaking to them, and they said, we don't want to hear God's voice. Moses, you be God's representative speaking to us. And now they're saying, who do you think you are that only you get to talk to God? And it's like, well, you and your fear gave up that right. So all these things they're complaining about is basically their fault. So verse 4, when Moses heard it, he fell down with his face to the ground. And then he said to Korah and to all his company in the morning, Yahweh will make known who are his and who is holy. He will cause that person to approach him, and the person he has chosen, he will cause to approach him. Do this, Korah, and all your company. Take censers, put fire in them, and set the incense on them before Yahweh tomorrow. And the man whom Yahweh chooses will be holy. You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. Moses said to Korah, Listen now, you sons of Levi, does it seem too small a thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the community of Israel to bring you near to himself to perform this, this service of the tabernacle of Yahweh and to stand before the community to minister to them? He has brought you near and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. Do you now seek the priesthood also? Moses first addresses Korah and Korah alone. They're the leaders. They're the ones with more of an argument here. And so he says two things here. First, okay, you want to know who God has picked to be the leader of this entire nation? You want to know who the high priest is? You think I've got like this some secret agenda going on picking my brother? Tomorrow, God will pick. <laughs> okay, you want to know? God will tell you. So the way they're going to determine this, he says, get your censers. Now, censer is like a steel, well, they didn't have steel back then, a metal, a metal container, like a round cylinder. And you would open up, and it had holes all over it, like a strainer. And you would put incense into this, frankincense or whatever, and close it up. So it was like one of those. So you would have this thing at the end of a chain, you put incense in it, and the smoke would billow out. And the priests would swing it as he walked to cleanse the path that he was walking on. So this would usually go before the Ark of the Covenant, before some of the instruments. He would do it as he would go into the Holy of Holies. But in that case, it was so that he actually would not see the Ark of the Covenant. He produced so much smoke, he wouldn't see it. And so basically, this was what the high priest used to cleanse and go into the Holy of Holies. So this becomes the symbol, the sign, so to speak, not the official, but one of the high priests. And they're all going to get their censers, and whoever censor smokes the most, we don't know. Moses doesn't really specifically say, and we don't find out what happens with these things, is the one that God is going to pick. 
The second thing he addresses here is, really? Like, God making you the priest of the entire nation, and you get to be closer to God than all the other families in this entire nation? That wasn't good enough for you? Most people would love to have this access to God, and you want more. And so what he's really trying to shove in their face is, this is about a relationship with God, and all you care about is power. You have intimate access to God that nobody else in the nation has, and yet you complain because, complain because you want power. You've totally missed the point. And as we saw earlier, this is not what true leadership looks like. True leadership is sacrifice, sacrifice and humility. So, verse 11, Therefore you and all your company have assembled together against Yahweh, and Aaron, what is he that you murmur against him? Then Mo- Moses summoned Dathan, Abriam, and the sons of Elab, and but he said, um, but they said, we will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land that flows with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? Now do you want to make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land that flows with milk and honey, nor given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Do you think that you can blind these men? We will not come up. So Moses sends messengers to the other families and says, Come and meet me and we'll discuss this. And they say, We're not going to come and meet you. Who do you think you are? And they basically send a message back saying, You've made yourself the leader of the entire nation. Even though they kind of forgot the voice that came out of heaven and and said, this is Moses, that he's my leader. And then they go on and say, you brought us out here to die. Now, this is what's really weird. You can kind of understand that when they have no water and they have no food and they accuse God of trying to kill them, it's like, yeah, that's kind of a stupid, illegitimate like complaint. But you kind of understand because the circumstances are pretty bad. But there's nothing in the text right here that suggests that anything's going wrong. This is just an everyday normal experience. And there's nothing about lack of water. There's no testing of God. This is just, they decide, oh, you're, gonna, you're here to kill us. And so once again, we see this constant theme of God trying to kill them, which is so like, I don't even understand anymore. Quick, yes. Is this like right after the last rebellion, like chronologically, or is this chronologically? Yes. How much time has gone by? We're somewhere in the forty years. All we know is that this is some event somewhere in the forty years. Is it a year later, five years later, ten years later? We don't really know. And we definitely know it's it's not it's it's somewhere in the first thirty or so years because we know that Aaron's going to die towards the end and he hasn't died yet. The narrator after pretty much after their refusal to enter the land and until we get to Balaam the narrator's not interested in any time frame in these stories he doesn't really care that's not the issue for him then they accuse him of saying you didn't fulfill your promises by bringing us to the promised land now that's probably what sparks the question like if this was just a few weeks ago like seriously do you not remember that one either now, what's so interesting is these people group, every single complaint that they're bringing against God is all has to do with their fault. I mean, in some ways, they're legitimate complaints. We were told we were going to be priests, and we're not priests. We're told that we're going to be brought in the promised land, and we're not brought in the promised land. We were told that we will all hear God, but we're not hearing God. But they've completely forgot the fact that it's their fault, their fault, their fault. And that's not really much different than what we do a lot of times. 
And a lot of times we're like, God, why aren't you speaking to us? And we kind of forgot that we haven't really been doing our devotions lately. And no wonder you can't hear God's voice. Or, or God, why can't I like, trust you or whatever? It's like, well, you haven't been trusting for the last several situations. And, and we do the same thing. We conveniently forget that if we don't pursue God, then of course we can't expect blessings. And they're doing the same thing. Verse 15, Moses was very angry. <laughs> And he said to Yahweh, have no respect for their offerings. I have not taken so much as one donkey from them, nor have I harmed any one of them. Now notice that every single time they brought something against God, Moses immediately comes and says, but God, please forgive them. Moses has lost his patience too. <laughs> He's like, I'm done. I don't care. Whatever you want to do to them, God, I'm behind you 100%. <laughs> okay, he is like, I'm done with interceding. I've done everything. And that's kind of interesting because right now we're seeing that this is true rebellion. That God is not in the mood for forgiveness. Moses is not in the mood for forgiveness. The patience of God is running out. And yes, God is long-suffering, but the Bible makes it very clear that even his patience runs out too. And that is clearly revealed all throughout the Bible. Verse 16, Then Moses said to Korah, You and all your company present yourselves before Yahweh, and you and they and Aaron tomorrow. And each of you take a censer, put incense in it, and then each of you present his censer before Yahweh. 250 censers. Now those are just the leaders. So that's huge. There's 250 leaders rebelling against God. Most likely a bunch of them are just bandwagon jumpers. Along with you and Aaron, each of you with his censer. So everyone took this censer, put fire in it, and set incense on it and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. When Korah assembled the whole community against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting, then the glory of Yahweh appeared before the whole community. So we know the pillar of fire is on that tabernacle, but when it says the glory of Yahweh appeared before the community, this implies something bigger. Whether it's moving off the tabernacle and actually literally coming right into their presence, or like all of a sudden the glory of God got supersized, Something more significant has happened than that just that 24-7 presence that we normally see. Most likely it's coming into the camp, and that would be really scary. So verse 20, Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from among his community, among this community, that I may consume them in the instant. Then they threw themselves down with their faces to the ground and said, O oh God, God of the spirits of all people, will you be angry with the whole community when only one man sins? So God says, the whole community is following this rebellion, so to speak. I'm going to wipe them all out. And this is where Moses does intercede, because Moses says, yes, but not the whole community is rebelling. And this should remind you of, this one's a little bit closer to the Abraham situation where God says, I'm going to wipe out Son Gomorrah, and Abraham says, yeah, but if there's ten righteous people or five righteous people, that kind of stuff, why don't you spare them? In this case, God says, yes, I will. So Yahweh spoke to Moses, tell the community to get away from the homes of Korah, Korah Dothan, and Abraham. Then Moses got up and went to Dothan and Abraham, the elders of Israel, and went after him. And he said to the community, Move away from the tents of these wicked men, and do not touch anything they have, lest you be destroyed because of all their sins. So they got away from their homes of Korah, Dothan, and Abram on every side. And Dothan and Abram came out and stationed themselves in the entrances of their tents with their wives, their children, and their toddlers. 
Now, you can only imagine this. Like, God, Moses stands up before all 12 tribes assembled and says, Everybody, get away from these people. And you can always just imagine an entire nation just kind of sidestepping <laughs> away from them because the lightning is literally going to come down. It's just always fun. I, for some reason, I always just think this, that would make an interesting cartoon right there. The idea is, like, does it, wouldn't that make you stop your rebellion right there? <laughs> like, if everybody's moving away from you and you have, like, personal experience with the judgments of God, I just think you would stop your rebellion. Um, but high-handed sins have no end. So the community walks away. Then I love this. These leaders, all through the Bible, Samuel, Moses, these people have great speeches. Pay attention to them when they talk. And Moses said, This is how you will know that Yahweh has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own will. If these men die of natural death, or if they share the fate of all the men that Yahweh has sent me, of the men, then Yahweh has not sent me. But if Yahweh does something entirely new, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up along with all that they have, and they go down alive to the grave, then you will know that these men have despised Yahweh. So Moses just comes up with the thing and says, okay, here's your test. If these guys just keep living and die of natural causes, then it's obvious God hasn't picked me. But if something like totally new that you've never seen, like, I don't know, the ground opens up and just swallows them, then you'll know that God has chosen me. Like, <laughs> like that's an interesting test. It's just a random thing to come up with. And God is going to honor this. Okay? Now you have to understand something. This is significant. This is kind of random, but kind of not. Because first, the ground opening up is a very powerful image in East, na- ancient Near Eastern thought. In ancient Near Eastern thought, there was a god who was the god of the dead in the Babylonian Canaanite territory. His name was Mot. Okay? And he often talks about opening up the earth, with, and the earth is his mouth. And he just swallows and eats clay all day long, and there is no end, and he's never satisfied. Now, of course, what is clay? It's us. Because in all mythologies, humans come from the clay, the dust of the earth. And so what he's saying is that he is death, and he is the grave, and he just eats men and women all the time, and he's never satisfied, because there is no end to death in humanity. Now, yes, in some ways you're like, okay, but that's a pagan story. Why is this being invoked here? Because remember, most of the time when God encounters these gods, he's always doing a polemic. And a polemic as God is using things of these gods, nature, but showing how he does it bigger and better than anybody else because he truly is the God that controls the nature. And that's important to understand that, like, don't be afraid when God does Baal-like stuff or Egyptian God-like stuff. The point is not that he's one of them. The point is that he does it better than because he is the only one that truly controls it. And so what he's giving them a point here is, I control the grave. I control death. Okay? I am the one that's sovereign over it all. And so when he had finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them along with their houses, holds, all of Kor's men, all their goods, and they and all they had went down alive into the pit, or the Hebrew word here, Sheol, the grave, and the earth closed over them. So they perished from among the community, and all the Israelites were around them fled, and they cried, for they said, What if the earth swallows us up too? Then a fire went out from Yahweh and devoured the 250 men who offered incense. Now, that would be horrific to see. That would be scary. 
this ground just opens up, swallows these four families, and then just closes up like nothing had ever happened. And then a fire goes out from God and consumes the 200 and other 50 leaders who decide to follow them. Now, if you've ever seen the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, that's the thing that always pops in my head when the ground is opening up and everybody's going down, except it's a lot more instantaneous and it closes up. And there is something very eerie. Um, it's kind of like if you, when there's a horrible noise that is so loud and so deafening and then it just shuts off drastically, that silence is eerie and very ominous in itself. And there's something horrific here about a ground opening up, the noise that that, that would be, and the, the, the horror, and all these people going down into the grave, and the ground closing up, and a fire going out and consuming the other 250 people, and then everything's just silent and done and over with. And there's just a vacant spot there. And that should really communicate the message of how God tolerates these things. Now, in one sense, you're like, wow, God, that's really harsh. But first, you must understand this. One, this is a reoccurring theme over and over and over again. The rebellion, their lack of really, truly seeing God for who he is, their lack of really understanding God's intolerance towards sin and rebellion. The fact that he has previously done stuff like this over and over again, and yet they can't see the warnings. This is a child that no matter how much you spank them, no matter how much you ground them, no matter how much you take things away from them, they just keep looking you in the face and shaking their fists and saying, I don't care what you do to me, I'm going to do what I want. Okay? This isn't just a sinful act, a mistake. This is intentional. I don't care how many times you spank me or ground me, I am against you. And it's repetitive over and over again. The second thing you must understand is these are the leaders. Remember, God has much less patience with those who are leaders, with those who have. They're actually the ones who are the closest to God other than the family of Aaron and Moses. They're the ones who are right up there against the tabernacle. They're the ones who are responsible for teaching holiness and faithfulness to the people. And if they get away with this, then everything God has done in the Torah is completely useless because all the people is, I mean, the old saying goes, a sin at the pulpit will be like a massive rebellion in the pews. Okay, when a leader does one thing, the people will always do it to a greater extent. And we've seen this with our presidential figures, with Clinton's sexual escapades and, and Trump's language and all that kind of stuff. We saw a nation who took a hold of that and started doing it more than it had ever been done before these people did these things. And so the reality is, this is the leaders. And if they're not dealt with, then the people will be even worse. And then third, you must understand, is technically they all deserve to die anyways. I mean, they're already under the curse of sin. They're already under the curse of breaking the covenant to begin with. Every single day that they have is just another extension. And God is judging them for this. And I know this is very hard for us as Americans to swallow, but the reality is God is God. And he put us in the land, and he has the right to take us out of the land. And the other thing we must understand is it's, if we as sinners can look at the news and watch people sin in horrific ways and be horrified, then how much more is a righteous God 
who knows no sin look at the sin of his people as he looks down on the earth. And so the reality is this is God dealing with them. And he has every right to deal with them in this way, not only because he is God, but because he also has laid out his character and his character cannot tolerate this anymore. And so they all go down. Yes. So I kind of struggle with the fact that like they're small children. We're all like fated to the same death. Could you just talk about that a little? We'll talk about this a lot more when we get to Joshua. Here's the reality. We struggle with that in America because we've been taught that like there's a difference between men and then women and children and sin, and there really isn't. One, we have to understand that we've already seen this before. It's called the flood. It's called Egypt. Okay, you remember when you're only saving eight people in the flood, there are women and children are all dying in the flood. It's interesting that we kind of like, my wife and I were joking about this the other day. So we were at this church, and this church has this, this is kind of side topic, but we're at this church, and there's this um, playground that this church had, and they painted, the whole playground was painted with a scene from Noah's Ark and the waters and all that kind of stuff. And we're like, why is it that one of the most horrific, violent, total wiping out, killing everybody in the entire world seen in the entire Bible is this like the most common children's Sunday school painting that people do all the time? Like this is the boat that only the people who survived and everybody else is out in the waters screaming to death. And it's like, let's put this in every kid's Sunday school class and paint it. It's, why is it that we've totally like ignored the horrificness of that and we're somehow okay with it, yet when we get to these other stories, we have questions, and rightfully so, but we've excused that. And I think it's because in that, it's just easy to see it's just a bunch of water. But here we can't get away from it because it literally says women and children. And the same too with Pharaoh, we kind of like, well, you have to realize the firstborn of everybody in Egypt was dying. And that included some small kids. Yet we don't think about that because it doesn't literally say children. And so you have to realize that this has happened several times and will continue to happen. And, and if you understand the second coming of Jesus Christ, like there's going to be a whole lot of children dying in that second coming. So... One thing I would say is that this is a common thing that is happening over and over and over again in the Bible. And I think what bothers us is, one, when it specifically says children, and that kind of stands out. And two, when we get to the, the conquest of Canaan, when it's specifically told that God is no longer using nature anymore, but he's actually using humans. I think that's harder for us to swallow as well. Second thing I would say is there is a sense that, remember, once again, even children... Or we all deserve to die. We're all sinners. And, and Paul makes this very clear in Romans, for all have sinned and all deserve to die. And even that child. And when you have children, you can see that, I mean, in some way, having a child helps you see that sin nature very quickly. You're like, oh yeah, they're totally born with that, okay? Um, when you're a little girl that can't even walk yet, you tell them not to touch the books on the bookshelf and she just looks at you like this and goes, you're like, oh, okay, that, that's not ignorance, that's rebellion, okay? But the other sense, it's like, but because there's this unexplainable love that just fills you up when you have your own child in your arms, 
it does seem kind of like at the same time, but how about, yes, but how could this cute little thing? And then they wake you up in the middle of the night screaming, crying, you're like, oh yeah, that one. So the reality is we have to realize that everybody is under the judgment. And I know that doesn't soften the blow. The third thing you have to understand is we don't understand corporate solidarity. That is completely foreign to us as Americans. Everybody in history and everybody in the world understood, and everybody in the world today, other than Europe and America, understands corporate solidarity. Everywhere in the world, what you do as an individual is for the family, for the community. You marry in order to benefit the family and the tribe. You, you go into a family business to benefit the community. Yes, there is a sense of individuality, and yes, there is selfishness that will always be there, but we don't, most of the ancient world, everybody in the ancient world, and a lot of the people in like places, the Far East especially, like India and China and that kind of stuff, they don't have this highly developed sense of individualism like we do today in America. And this, this is the result of several revolutions that we've fought in the 1700s and that kind of stuff. And this idea that my right, my right, my right, my right, most of them don't think that way unless they're starting to become Americanized um, by our culture. And the idea that what happens to the family is what's gonna happen to everybody is completely foreign to us. And that one's hard for me to explain because I don't fully grasp it being like Americanized my entire life, let alone to teach that to other people. Um, but we kind of get that idea that there's a lot of things that are happening in this country right now that I don't agree with because our presidents and our Congress have made decisions, yet I'm reaping the consequences of it. And my children are reaping the consequences. And since since we understand that there is a corporate solidarity and the fact that I didn't vote for you or even if I voted for you, I don't agree with that and I don't agree with that. And, and now my daughters are going to grow up in this really horrible country not that the whole country is horrible, but these parts of the country or these things in the country are horrible, and they've got to face these challenges because of this guy or this Congress made decisions that I don't agree with. And we're all reaping the consequences of that. And so and there's some sense that when a father leads in something, that example is being set to the kids, and they're the ones going home. And I, I don't know if you can, this is probably something you'll only understand when you're a teacher, but there's so many things that kids come in and they're like talking about Bush or Obama or Clinton or Trump. And you realize like, you're in middle school, you have no idea what you're talking about. You're just regurgitating what your parents say. And after a while you realize how much your kids are doing because you do it. And that's hard to root out of them. There really is no innocence. And as you go through, there's no sense of women being innocent. When we get to Jezebel, she's not that innocent. We look at people like Hillary, she's not that incident. There was a lot of people who, females, who backed Hitler, okay? Hitler had a lot of females that were standing next to his side and parading it and, and amening and that kind of stuff. And you have to realize that there is a certain sense where the idea of women and children being innocent is not really truly true. Somehow we've bought into this idea that men are more, well, I can tell you how. Just read a book called Total Truth by Nancy Percy. She explains perfectly how we bought into this idea that men are somehow more evil than the women are. So you have to realize that they're still guilty of that. But the big thing I just have to say is like, there is something about a family being shaped by their parents. And, and that that kid will grow up to be this thing. And that's not a guarantee, but there is something to that. And two, there is just a sense of 
I can't explain that fully that, yeah, God does include the entire community. We're going to see that with Achan in the book of Joshua. And to that, I would say this. My final comment is I don't really have a total answer to that because I'm not from that culture, and it's hard to talk about a culture you're not from. Um, But the other thing I would say is this. It's okay that it bothers you, and it should bother you. When I give you these logical reasons, my attempt is not to um, assuage your emotions and to make you feel all warm and fuzzy about this happening. There is something just logically understanding God has this right because da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But there is another sense with no matter how logical and how just that is, it still should bother you. Because the reality is this is still people made in the image of God who are dying. And the reality is that this is the same God that is killing them now is the same God that loved them so much that he's going to send his only son to die on the cross for them. And the fact that God says, I've sent my son so that none shall perish, but all will have life. And even Israel, who's so rebellious that he's about ready to bring the Romans in to wipe them all out, man, woman, and child, says to them, how I long to gather you to me, Israel, in my arms like a mother bird gathers her children to her. And there's a sense that whatever we feel is nothing compared to what God is feeling as he's doing it. And there's a certain sense where I have to just look at this and say, it doesn't feel good, it's not right, and I hope that that never ever dies in me because then that means I've lost something in myself when I'm okay with this and it doesn't emotionally bother me. But at the same time, God loves them far more than I do. And God knows their heart more than I do. And in the end, as I look at his character consistently throughout the entire Bible, God is good and God is just. And he has a perspective on all of humanity that I don't have. And it's in those moments where I just have to look at the reputation of God. I have to look at the cross. I have to look at the patience here. And I have to just ultimately in the end say, I don't understand God. But in the end, I trust you because I know that you're a God of love and you're good and I'm just surrendering this to you. Does that kind of make sense? And that's kind of where I come down. And, I, and I'm bothered by it and I feel like that's I should be bothered by it because I am a child of God and I'm reflecting his image. But I also am submitting to this divine God of the universe who has a much bigger perspective on anything than I do. And in the end, the cross ultimately demonstrates that he's good and he's trustworthy And he's worked it out somehow that all people have a chance to find salvation. And if they didn't find salvation, then it wasn't his fault. And other than that, I just don't know what to do with it, and I just kind of give it back over to him. And then when somebody, a Christian, comes, rightfully struggling, I give that. And when the atheist comes attacking me, I present who God is, and I just leave it in the Holy Spirit's hand to do whatever it is. Does that kind of help? Okay. (laughs) I know it's a long answer, but I want to make sure that, like, this stuff is kind of clear. It's kind of like God showing how important or how uh, critical it is to stomp out this rebellion to make sure that the kids could have gotten some of this. This can't come. It's not just because the kids will be bad later. It's because this could infect the community. Exactly. And a big part of that is infection. 
And when we get to Deuteronomy 7, which is probably one of the most violent passages of go and exterminate the Canaanites, God specifically says, because if you do not, then they will come in your families and they will corrupt you. And it will spread like an infection. And so part of that is that too. And there could be, if you, 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 listen, if you've got parents that have already ignored the last two years of what God's doing, and they had the audacity to go up to this God and say, you're trying to kill us. You're keeping things from us. You know what they're talking about at the dinner table every single night. So you have to realize that these kids at the dinner table are hearing dads say this night after night after night after night, which means they're being indoctrinated into this. And then when they watch their dad die, they're going to be like, see, this is what my dad's been talking about all along. Now, that's total conjecture. I mean, I don't know for a fact that that's what's happening, but we have also know human nature enough that's probably what's happening. And so there's a certain extent that can you really root that out of the kid? And that if that's not stamped out, it will spread. So yeah, that's exactly a good point. But this is hard. But here's the thing. This is what makes this is the other the, you, this is what you need to remember. This is what makes Yahweh so awesome. Everywhere in history and everywhere in religions, when you see atrocities or horrific events or drastic I don't understand how that can happen. What does everybody always do when they write the history books? They whitewash it. If you read every history book, you go to Germany, you read the history books about the... They don't talk about it. A lot of it is because they're ashamed. Even America, what have we done with our extermination of the Chinese and the American Indians in, in America? We just kind of washed, whitewashed it. And we talk about how, but they were the savages. And look, they were doing things too. No, not like what we did. What we do is we rewrite everything, or we villainize them. But this is what makes God so awesome, so unique. He puts it in there, and he doesn't whitewash it, and he doesn't apologize. And that says something, too, that God is not afraid of his witness putting this story in here, black and white, without any political propaganda or agenda, and he just says, here it is. And what he's really asking you to do is, you can't put me in a box. This is who I am. I am that God who dies on the cross for you, and I'm that God who does this. And now you've got 66 books and the Holy Spirit living in you, and you've got to chew, for lack of a better phrase, on this God. And you've got to figure out what you're going to do with him. And that's what makes God so awesome is that everything is just right here in the word without apology. And he just says, I will not let you box me. Can you deal with this? And that's what all of us have to go through. And we have to go through the same thing too when we're suffering in our own lives. And we're like, but why God? And you've got to chew on that. Is he good? And that's what makes, I mean, this is what makes the Bible so amazing, is this, this is not propaganda. It's, it's, it's there. Everything is there. With no apology, no whitewashing, no blushing. It's just there. And now you have this God for who he really is, and he's complex. And I think this is why C.S. Lewis said, he, Aslan's a lion? And he's like, but is he safe? No, he's not safe. He's a lion child, but he's good. And what do you do with that?
And that's where you spend the rest of your life trying to chew on this good but scary God. And that's why God says part of being a Christian is the fear of the Lord. And you cannot water that down and say, yeah, but that just means respect. No, it means I'm scared to death of you. But it also means that I can sit on your lap and call you Abba, Father. That's God. That's God. I mean, that's a great question. And, 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 and shame on the people who try to candy sugarcoat it or ignore it. It just is what it is.